Welcome to part five of our Misery mini-series, where Annie is going to get a cut above. Above what? <laughs> that was good, too. <laughs> Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock. With Kim Payne. And Otto Mullins. So, this is the spot. This is the spot where I can never stop. I always have to finish this section. Um, and I think I, 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 this is the moment where I like couldn't stop reading. Yeah. Like this is the moment where I was like, I'm gonna finish the book now. Yep. Um, and it's one. Even though line, we weren't supposed to finish the book, we weren't supposed to. <laughs> like uh, going forward, we're gonna have a little bit more of a different. Like I'm gonna not be finishing the book when we talk about things. So that way, I don't know what's happening and I'm not spoiling it as much. Um, but there's one line in here. Uh, what do you want first, Paul? She asked the good news or the bad news. Good news, he managed with a big foolish grin. Uh, she looked at him reproachfully. I love the book. I told you that. I never lie. I don't want to read anymore until the very end. I'm sorry. But it's like peaking. The good news is that your car is gone. I've been worried. Well, that's the good news. Don't need me don't so coy. I'm trying to find it. You know exactly what mm-hmm. line I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the threads were broken. The threads, he said faintly. Oh, yes. I read once about a way you're supposed to find out for sure if someone's been snooping around in your drawers. Mm-hmm. So at this moment, just to make sure we're all on the same page, he has fallen asleep. He's laying in bed, wakes up. Some, this woman, Annie, has just slid a needle into his arm. And injected something. Something. And over the last page and a half, he's starting to really start to giggle and smile. And even halfway through... Uh, the most scary moment of his life probably he says oh boy you are stoned Mm -hmm. so he's still having like that moment there and now she's revealing her master plan you tape a fine thread across each one and if you come back and find one broken why you know don't you you know someone's been snooping so she took a strand of hair taped it across the outside of the book and when he opened the book the hair was broke so she knew immediately that he had read and strolled down her memory lane. Right. Well, and and not just the book. Very early, creeping like a little mouse, all three threads on the book were broken. I knew you had been looking at my book. Not that I was surprised you'd been that you'd been out of the room. That's the bad news. I've known for a long, long time. Oh man, he is done goofed. Yeah. I, I really think that in the back of his mind, he knew he wasn't getting away with it. I think that's why he was covering his butt so often, mm-hmm. like constantly worried about it. And I think that that's, I think he knows it the moment he touches the medicine the first time. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, no, she's going to know exactly how this was. And he's, she's just trying to convince himself, like, no, it's going to no, be, be fine. fine. It'll be fine. He's known. Again, she went bent over to check whatever it was that she had at the foot of the bed. Again, he heard a faint, dull clunk clank. Mm-hmm. wood thumping against some metallic object I did that with my book only I didn't really use threads you know I used tears from my own head like uh, she's just out here like it being inventive changing the game that's the bad news I've known for a long long time Paul but she said we were talking about your car I have studded tires Paul early yesterday afternoon I felt ever so much better I spent most of my time up there on my knees deep in prayer and the answer came as it often does, and it was quite simple, as it often is. So I put the chains on, and I crept back down here. So she goes up to the car, and she decides that she's going to just pull the car and put it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. 
Um, then I got stuck in a snowbank. That was around midnight. But a sanding crew from the Eustace Public Works came along and helped me out. She got stuck in a car accident. The irony there is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a public works department came and pulled her out yep. and didn't kidnap her and put her in a room and, you know, make them get addicted to drugs. Right. They just left her. The two miles in from the the county highway, that was the last hard patch. The county highway is Route 9. You know, the road you were on when you had your wreck, I stopped where you went off and looked for your car. And I knew what I would have to do if I saw it. Bum, bum, bum. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to hide anything anymore. She, he's read the book. He knows. He knows. Um, one of the reasons I brought you back was because it seems like more than a coincidence. It seems like the hand of providence. Your car was wrecked in almost the exact same spot where I got rid of that Pomeroy creep. The one who said he was an artist. She flapped a hand in contempt, shifted her feet, and there was that wooden clunking sound again. I picked him up on the way back from Estes Park. So Pomeroy is the one that was there right in the book right before Paul. Right before Paul. And it was very like his body ended up miles away. Um, That's why it was so important. So important to know like, yeah, Yeah. that it was there. I just didn't realize it was going to be like the next chapter. He said he was, oh, so then now we get the Pomeroy story. Yeah. Um, Now we get the whole who this man was. Pomeroy was hitchhiking. He had a pack on his back. He said he was an artist, although I found out later he was nothing but a hippie, dope, fiend, dirty bird who had been washing dishes in an SD Park restaurant for the last couple of months. When I told him I had a place in Sidewander, he said it was a real coincidence. He said he was going to Sidewander. He had gotten an assignment from a magazine in New York. He was going up there to an old hotel to sketch the ruins. He was crazy. Everybody in town said so, but never mind. He's dead. I let Pomeroy stay here with me. We were lovers. And... He takes yeah. the time to separate the like paragraph out there and like be like they're uh, separate sentences and thoughts and like right. different like revelations but for Paul and that Annie's revealing. It's really nice. The, the old hotel, the old hotel was the Overlook, burned down ten years ago. The caretaker burned it down. He was crazy. Everyone in town said so, but never mind. He's dead. That's not important in this book, but. One of the things that Stephen King does, as you will find out, is a lot of his books touch points. Oh, is the Overlook a hotel in another? It sure is. Which book? The Shining. Oh, is it The Shining? It's The Shining Hotel. Oh, that's a fun little connection. Kind of a spoiler there for you, but that's okay. We'll read the book. Then I found out he didn't really have an assignment to draw pictures of the hotel at all. He was just there doing them on his own, hoping to sell them. He wasn't even sure the magazine was doing an article on the Overlook. I found that out pretty quick. Uh, I sneaked a look at his sketchbook, and I felt I was perfectly right to doing that. After all, he was eating my food and sleeping in my bed. There was only eight or nine pictures in the whole book, and they were terrible. So now she's an art critic, too. Yeah, because she's the one. She's giving him food, so she gets to decide what's good art. Right. I could have made better pictures. He came in while I was looking, and he got mad. He said I was snooping. He didn't like that I was calling him things... I said I didn't call looking at things in my own house snooping. I said if he was an artist, I was Madame Curie. He started to laugh. He laughed at me. So I, I, you killed him, Paul said, his voice dim and ancient. Well, I guess it was something like that. I don't remember very well, just that he was dead. I remember that. I remember giving him a bath. So (laughs) she completely disassociates. She kills the dude, gives him a bath, and has no real conscious memory of it. So how many of those other 
people and babies did she kill and not really remember the details some you know or at least like or was this one just so i feel like this one is and the, passionate like, so it was yes. different because i feel like the other ones you have to have a sense of premeditation to like no, you're going to go into a baby's room and do whatever you're going to do to kill that baby. Right. Whereas here, you, she just blacks out and murders. Right. You know, she gave him a bath. She had to. You probably don't know what the police can do with just one piece of thread or dirt under someone's fingernails or even just dust in a corpse's hair. You don't know, but I worked in hospitals all my life. I do. I do know. I know about forensics. I like how it's like spelled out four and six. Yes. Because it's like... It makes me think that somebody corrected how she said that word in the past. Yes. You know what I mean? And so it's something that, like, in her mind, it made her seem weak. And so she's like, I'm not going to say that word wrong again. So now every time she says it, she really hits that forensics. Yes. Just to really make sure, like, I'm not stupid. I'm smart. I said the word correctly. Yeah. Um, And then the extreme paranoia. They're out to get me. All of them. The dirty birds around here would say anything to get me in trouble or smear my name. I washed, well, what was left of him and his clothes. I knew what to do. It was snowing outside, the first real snow of the year, and they said we'd have a foot by the next morning. I put his clothes in a plastic bag and wrapped the body in sheets and took everything out to the dry wash on Route 9 after dark. I walked about a mile further down from where your car ended up. I walked until I was in the woods and just dumped everything. You'd probably think I hit him, but I didn't. I knew the snow would cover him up, and I thought the spring melt would carry him away if I left him in the stream bed. And that was what happened, except I had no idea he would go that far. Why, they found his body a whole year later, after he died, and almost 27 miles away. 27 miles away. So we know that this is a long, a lot further than Paul thought in his head, I'm sure, as he was looking at that book. I'm sure he's thinking this place can't be that far. If this kid's body was found there, it can't be that far from here. And that's where your car is now, Paul. Somewhere between Route 9 and the Girder Wildlife Preserve. So she went up into the woods, chained up his car, pulled it into that stream bed, probably a couple miles off, and she says, it's far enough in so you can't see it from the road. I've got a spotlight on the side of old Bessie, and it's plenty powerful, but the wash is empty all the way into the woods. I guess it'll go in on foot and check when the water goes down a little, but I'm almost positive it's safe. Some hunters will find it in two or five years or seven years all rusty with chipmunks in it. By then you will finish my book and we'll be back in New York or Los Angeles or wherever it is you decide to go. She <laughs> sees this as just like something that's going to be nice and easy breezy. Like we're going right, to break up just, and you're yeah, going to go gonna your go separate on, ways. Yeah, and everything's going to just go back to normal. Um, maybe we'll even write. Ah! Ugh. You see, I knew I thought that part might be really quite unpleasant. I'm not a dummy, you know. I've often read some about some famous authors and I know that they are quite unpleasant. But you're not like that, and after a while I came to know the rest of Paul Sheldon, and I hoped you don't mind me saying it, but I've come to love the rest of him, too. Thank you, Annie, he said from the top, his golden glistening wave. Mm. Good alliteration, Steve. <laughs> um, as for the shooting dope, I've got the Borka Bee Goddess to do for me. But what would you want, but why, but would you want to stay, she resumed. That was the question I had to ask myself. Do you remember the first time I went away? After we had that silly fight over the paper. Yes, Annie. Yeah, silly fight where she slammed his... She punched his broken knee, Punched his broken knee and left him in his chair and... Yeah. Left him for... Yeah, left him in the chair. That was when he went out the first time. Yep. 
Yeah. You wanted your pills. I should have known you'd do anything to get your pills. But when I get mad, I get, you know, she giggled a little nervously. Nervously. Yes, I know how you get, he thought. You get oogie. <laughs> yeah. Oogie. oogie. What a word. word. At first, but he's super stoned. He's so stoned. And he's also like, he's been, pre- he's, he has his little aneisms that he's like, mm, I don't know. Adapted. I've hung out with people that like, I like things that they say. So I just start saying it. Like a friend of mine, like when you're up late at night and you've drank a little bit too much and you fall asleep, they call it falling out. And that's a phrase that I really like. So I started using it too. And it's yep. just those little things that you can pick up from like the people you hang out with. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that he's saying like oogie and dirty birdie right. and like that kind of stuff. Uh, at first, I wasn't completely sure. I saw that some of the figures on the little table in the parlor might have been moved, but I thought I might have done that myself. It crossed my mind that you'd been out of your room, but then I thought, no, that's impossible. He's so badly hurt. And besides, I locked the door. Then I remembered you were in your chair, so maybe. One of the things you learn when you've been an RN for 10 years is that it's always wise to check your maybes. So I took a look at the things I keep in the downstairs bathroom. They're mostly samples. And every now and then I helped myself to a few, uh, a few extras, and that wasn't the only one. But I knew enough to not take any of those morphine-based drugs. They lock those up. They count. They keep records. They watch the nurse until they're sure. Then bang. Once they go, most of them never put on the white cap again. Um, So she's just talking about how, like, she knows for a fact how to steal drugs from the hospital. Right, right. She was smarter than that. So so it was okay that she was killing people and then proceeded to killing babies. But she wasn't going to take the morphine drugs because they'd catch her. At the same time, she's still just taking. I like that's funny too. Think Crazy, that, like, delusional. I wonder. In the same day, she probably murdered a baby and then took home some sample packets of like Norville. Right. In the same day, then two days later, after I had just decided to let it go, I came in to give you your afternoon medication. You were still having that, but I tried to turn the doorknob for a few seconds. It wouldn't turn. It was like the door was locked. Then it did turn, and I heard something rattle inside the lock. Then you started to stir around, so I gave you your pills like always, like I didn't suspect. I'm very good at that, Paul. Then I helped you into your chair so you could write. And when I helped you in that into it that afternoon, I felt like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. My eyes were opened. I saw how much of your color had come back. I saw that you were moving your legs, that they were giving you pain, and you could only move them a little, but you were moving again. And your arms were getting stronger as well. I saw you were almost healthy again. So she's... She's so lucid right now. Yeah. She's aware of not only like what he was doing, but how she was responding and reacting emotionally to those moments. Yep. And it, it's very obviously because she had the four, like she'd separated. She did her only, her only, only. healthy coping mechanism. She separated, separated herself. From the situation. She went through all mm-hmm. the details in Got her brain. Very introspective. Yes. Yes. Paul. So. Uh, the night I changed your medication for something a little stronger, and when I wasn't sure you were going to wake up, it even exploded a grenade under your bed. I got my so, little toolkit. He just took whatever she gave him. Mm-hmm. So she like didn't so even, he doesn't he even he didn't even realize that, that he was she just more given, stoned up that night. Yeah, that she had given him something that wasn't what he normally took. She put, uh, and I took the keep, I got my toolkit from the seller shelf, and I took the seller shelf, that's a, that's a <laughs> hard one to say. I took the key plate off that door, and I look what I found. It was a bent and twisted chunk of bobby pin. Mm-hmm. Paul began to giggle. He couldn't help it. What's so funny, Paul? The day you went to pay your taxes, I needed to open the door again. The wheelchair was almost too big. It left black marks. I wanted to wipe them off if I could, so I wouldn't see them. Yes, but you already had, hadn't you? 
After I found one of my bobby pins in the lock, you bet your Rudy patooties I had. Yeah. <laughs> all for nothing. Uh, all his work, all his worry, all for nothing. It seemed deliciously funny, Paul thought. I was worried that piece of bobby pin might mess me up. And there was a good reason for that, wasn't there? It never rattled because you took it out. What a fooler you are, Annie. Mm -hmm. Yes, she said, and smiled thinly. What a fooler I am. Hey, Constant Listeners, Otto here. Thank you so much for being a part of our incredible story as we read these incredible stories. We're so excited that you're here, and we're so excited that we have these incredible commercials to share with you. I hope you enjoy them as much as I enjoy them every single time I listen to them, because I enjoy them deeply. From New York Times bestselling author Paul Sheldon comes Misery's Return. A rich young widower, a newly dead wife, a newborn baby, and their friend Gregory. Also this guy with an offensive accent. Discover the intrigue of life as they take a trip to Africa. Discover resurrection and allergy comas. Bees? A goddess bee? What are you saying? Stand script, please. Join Misery as we have never seen her before as Paul Sheldon breathes new life into a timeless classic coming August 44th. What a great time to find your freedom. Hit the open road with Greyhound. All one-way tickets, just $44.95. Don't forget to grab your postcard at the official Greyhound desk before boarding your bus. Have a safe travels. Hi, Constant Listeners. If you're looking for another way to support First Time Through, you can do that at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash through. There, you can get access to exclusive content, including video reviews of the movies based on the books that we've read, exclusive pictures and blogs, as well as exclusive early access to episodes, sometimes up to days early, but sometimes hours early. Hey, Constant Listeners, we'd like to hear from you. What was your first Stephen King book, and why is it special to you? Make sure you respond on our Facebook page or on our Twitter using hashtag FTT4 so that we know you're talking about this question. So we stopped. Right. With as, the... Uh, the wooden thump from the foot of the bed came mm -hmm. again. Right on... Right before chapter 22. Um, In section 2. Okay. So, welcome back everyone. Once this first part happens, with the surprise thump we left you off last time, it it's really... It's like a car going downhill it without brakes. <laughs> Oof. It's like a lawnmower going a downhill. A lawnmower going downhill. Well, foreshadowing. So Annie starts interrogating Paul. How many times were you out in all? He immediately remembers he has that knife under his mattress. Yep. So he's, at least he has that little bit of defense. Tell the truth, Paul. No matter how stoned he was, he remembered that that knife. knife was under the bed. Three times, I swear, and I never go away. For Christ's sakes, I'm writing a book here in case you didn't notice. Don't use the Savior's name in vain, Paul. Just that still with that mightier than thou attitude. And so she asks again, how many times did you get out? It's really becoming a good interrogation. How many times her voice was rising? Tell the truth. I am three times. I don't think she's going to believe him. No, I, he could he could say a hundred times and he went skipping down the driveway and she wouldn't believe him. I don't think Annie cares if he tells the truth. I don't care if he tries and she doesn't right. care if he goes for any sort no, of redemption. She's absolutely made her choice about what's going to happen next. This is just a game to her. 
and the prize is her book. So she's not going to kill the golden goose, but she is certainly going to rock his world. Yeah, for real. And she just decides, uh, he just says at this point, like, I don't care. Like, however many times you think I was out, that's how many times I was out. And she was like, I think seven. And it doesn't matter because <laughs> I think if we go back, it was probably, it was. I think it was three. Because three. he went out to get the drugs. He, he went, went out, out to, to get, get the food, food, and then he, he went, went out, out to get the knife. Knife. Yep. So three. Um, and now he remembers the pre-op shot, and he hits that word there, pre-op. Mm-hmm. So she just refuses to even listen to him. Yeah. She's made up his mind about who he is and what he's going to be doing, and right. I think that... And then she accuses him of going upstairs. Upstairs in a wheelchair with two broken legs and a shattered, and a shattered pelvis. And a shattered and, yeah, pelvis. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, he's just going to race right up the steps to find out what she's got in her bedroom. Oh, my God. It's just, she's definitely doing not well no, in this moment. No, not at all. Not and at all. I think all. she's just got to feel, in Annie's shoes for a second, she's got to feel so betrayed. Because she's been taking care of this guy, giving him everything that he wants to complete this book. She really finally feels like they're at this, like, point. And, like, I think she did see those marks, and she's just kind of, like, you know, it was, like, a first strike. She's like, I'm just going to forget about it. It's going to be, like, you know, it's like training a puppy. He's going to make mistakes, and I just got to be nice and, like, try to get him into the right path. But as soon as she found those broken hairs on the book, as soon as she found the broken hairs on the cupboards and the drawers and the the basement door, mm-hmm. like it was done for. She it was, was done so for. betrayed. She was over Her it. trust was broken and gone. And I think that that's what she's like at this point. I just have to do what I have to do to make sure that things are going to go successful for me. She's taking the future into her own hands. Yep. Um, and she says, "Have you ever heard of an operation called hobbling, Paul?" And that's what I'm going to do to you for my own safety and yours as well. Believe me, you need to be protected from yourself. Terror, sharp as a gust of wind filled with razor blades, blew through the dope and Paul's eyes flew open. She had risen and now drew the bedclothes down, exposing his twisted legs and bare feet. She bent over. When she straightened up, she was holding the axe from the shed in one hand and a propane torch in the other. That's a terrifying silhouette. I gotta do something called hobbling to you. It's time for an operation. That's the thing too. Is she's no, she sees him getting healthy. She sees him doing all these things, and she's like, "No, for you to this to work, you need me. You have to one hundred percent need me in all capacities. You have to be reliant on me. So I'm gonna break your legs again, and yeah. that's what her plan is. She's gonna break his legs again. Oh, oh no, she's not. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, and that's the thing too. Is like I think that that's interesting because like she's not gonna break his leg. I'd only think that because that's what happens in the book or in the or movie. In the movie. Mm-hmm. in the movie, she breaks his leg. In the book, it is significantly so more horrifying. Worse. It is infinitely worse. Um, because I know you're sitting there like me, like, what does she have this torch for? She's just gonna break his legs. I'm a trained nurse, she says, as the axe came whistling down and buried itself in Paul Sheldon's left leg just above the ankle. Pain exploded his body in a gigantic bolt. And it gets, honestly, not as gross as you would expect. No. He is so focused on Annie and what, and like just the fact that this is even happening that I don't think he can even like process how much pain is going through his body. He's also got the drugs and everything that helps, but. 
And then she says, can't suture, no time, tourniquet's no good, no central pressure point. Gotta cauterize. And so now we know what the torch is for. And she lights the torch and just starts burning his leg. And now he's screaming. And it's he disassociates with the pain. He doesn't even realize he's the one screaming at first. That's how strong the drugs and the pain are in this yep. moment. And he can just smell the smell of a pig when they brought it out of the pit where it had cooked all day for a luau almost over she's just whispering at him almost over now you're hobbled now you're now you're hobbled she said and you don't blame me it's your own fault she went out so did paul yeah but you know talks about her picking up the severed foot and the toes still spasming he can see a scar on the bottom of his foot and has remembered even how through everything that. that's happened he knows exactly how he got that scar Oof. on his foot and then unconscious i mean that's such a wow. like i remember telling you this when i read that for the first time but like that one small insignificant inconsequential detail is so chilling mm-hmm. like just the idea that like someone's going to literally cut off a part of you and carry it out while you're incapacitated and you're gonna see it like i don't feel like in a regular amputation setting if I was to be getting my leg cut off in like a hospital, they're not going to show it to me afterwards. No, no, because you're going to be that would be in, traumatic and it would be awful. And you'll wake up and it'll just be gone. And yeah, it, yes. You're just like, oh no, man, I'm missing that leg. It, right. But he's like, got to watch it be carried out with the toes still twitching. Oof. Oof. What yeah. a life Paul Sheldon is living. It is not optimal. And uh, so, I think this is probably, understandably, when Paul gets a little broken. Yeah. And I think that, like, Annie in this moment really lives up to her goddess, like, moniker. Mm -hmm. She's omniscient, almost. She's really, like, surprised everybody, I think, including the reader and Paul, that she, like, that little trick with the hair is ingenious. It's such a clever, smart little thing, because you're going to be one of the only people to notice, like, a strand of hair. Right. But she was able to, like, make sure that her suspicions were correct. And it's also funny how obviously lucid she must have been inside of all of her depression because she was at least lucid enough to like set all of those traps for Paul before she left. Yeah. Because she knew because she had already seen the the marks on the wall. She mm-hmm. knew that it was he she knew he was going out. This was just her way of confirming it. And yes, like you said, even through all the depression and all of the binge eating and the gross not cleaning behind herself, she was coherent enough and to to set these traps and mm. oh oof. it's that's terrifying too like just the thought of like like we were talking about she has enough self-preservation to protect herself make sure that paul can't get out and make sure nobody comes in and sees mm-hmm. her stuff but she has no like forethought sight she didn't think about it, anything at all like what was gonna happen if she'd actually chopped this guy's foot off and he bled to death. Yeah, like th- like if he would have just bled to death on that bed, she would have just been like, oh, man, now I'm not getting my book. Like, that probably would have right. been like, the worst of her. Right, and she probably would have given him a bath and thrown him, him in the... Fed him to the pig. Fed him to the pig or thrown that's him the in the I ditch get, for like, the runoff. She should have and... fed the artist to the pig. I feel like that's a basic, like, um, serial killer move. But we end part two here with two paragraphs, and it's just about... Paul has regressed back to where he was at the beginning of the book now. He just dives right back into the pain medication. He hides himself into that cloud, the tides. And 
he the last thoughts he has before he passes out is goddess kill you goddess kill you goddess mm-hmm. kill you and then there was nothing but nothing and we get into Paul uh, and it has a little John Fowles uh, quote which is fun because Paul has been reading John Fowles throughout the novel so it's we get a little like ah like Paul this chapter is called Paul here's something he's been reading it's probably like characterized something that resonates but also it's a little like I mean, it's vanity, but it seems a sort of magic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's a yep. good... Um, sets the mood. It really sets the mood. And then immediately we get into how... So he's... He- okay, now it's better. Hmm. Um, so we start chapter three with... Or not Section three. three. Part three is called Paul. And we started off with Paul losing another key on his, key, on his typewriter. Yeah. The T. The T. So now, in case you're keeping track, we're down an N and a T. Mm. Can you imagine? And then immediately after that, we have, what, six page, six chapters? Or no, three, two chapters. And it's just, it was the first day of summer, you know, so there's bees outside. Bees just constantly, you know, if you leave them alone, they won't bite you or sting you or anything. But the moment you rattle their cage and mess with them, they're going to attack you with all their fury until they're dead. Yep. And uh, I don't think there's a better Paul metaphor for Paul Sheldon in this moment than that. No, not right? at all. He is a bee in a little glass jar that has been rattled the whole like week. And now, like the moment you set him free, he's going to come after you. He is. With no abandon. So at the end of the misery chapter, the misery within the misery chapter, um, he loses another letter in the typewriter. This time it's the E, oh. which in case you aren't aware, is the most commonly used letter in the English language. And it says right there, just to add to the fun, the old royal had now thrown the most frequently used letter in the English language. Paul looked at the calendar. And tomorrow... He would go to longhand. So he just decides at this point he's not even going to mess with the typewriter anymore. It's He's better off just writing everything out by yeah. hand. Which, I don't know, seems like an awful. Like, that feels like it would hurt. Like, and I mean, I know it does hurt. Like, he write, he's got to write so much. Right. But mm-hmm. art consists of the persistence of memory. I like that line a lot. It's, a, it's interesting. And I think that, like, this little bit of existentialism where he's just, like, talking about art and thinking about his own life is very escape. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's very it escape. It is it's very, very much escape. a chance for him to, like, think about literally anything else. Also, a little bit of foreshadowing. He listened to the monotonous snarl of the riding mower, lawnmower, saw her shadow, and so often happened... And as so often happened when he recalled of how weird Annie was getting, his mind recalled the image of the axe rising. And I think he makes that lawnmower sense of scary. Yeah. Like and like specifically the monotonous snarl of the riding lawnmower. It's right. just right. Like, not a drone. It's a not snarl. a. It's a snarl. It's a specific choice of word too. Yeah. Um, and then the axe coming down, the whisper of the axe, don't think about it. And now he's just starting to repress the trauma of watching himself get his foot cut off right. with a, a woodsman's axe. Right. Because, you know, trauma. Uh, you know, that's what you do with that's trauma. That's what you, you do with you it. You just, just put it away. You just put it away. Put it in a box, throw away the key. It's all good. <laughs> uh, and now he really starts to compare himself to Sherazade. 
just uh, an artist with nothing to lose, just really trying to... An Get. artist with nothing to lose, just really trying to like become more than he is himself. Right. Trying to become like... At this point, it seems like he's like, if I can't survive, I'm going to become a martyr. Right. And I think that that is almost starting to become his goal and how he looks at it. Um, and he's starting to like... We were talked about this a little bit before, but the sign of mental deterioration is when you know your little voice starts winning. And his little voice starts to win a little bit it here. It does. It wins. It does. And not and just a little bit. In some moments, it wins the entirety of the fight. Um, now, there was a sensation not floating, but sliding. Sometimes thoughts came. Um, and then, all of a sudden, we just hear, drink this, Paul, you've got to. Come on, quick as you can, Paul. Your father has had a bad stroke. He's sinking. So we're just seeing a bunch of disassociation into the dreams, into probably extra pain medicine because he's just taking whatever And he just doesn't, I mean, again, we've got real short chapters. It's like he doesn't know where he is. There's the the line between when he's asleep and when he's awake is real nebulous. You know, you just don't know. He doesn't know where he he's at again. Of, uh, he pretty much in, essentially inserts misery into his dreams, too. Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, we get these moments of lucid, like, what's happening with me and Anna? What's going on? And then, did they escape from the Borka Bees? And you're like, wait, that doesn't connect. Like, right. how, where did that come from? And Oh, he had lain in a semi-coma, barely breathing because of the respiratory depressant side effects of the medication. The glucose strips back in his arms again. What had brought him out of it was the beat of the drums and the drone of the bees. Mm. Just constantly. The the gotta. What brought him out of it was the gotta. He's gotta finish he's the gotta finish He's the so story. enraptured in it for himself now. So it's, right. It's no longer just about what she wants. It's about him. Mm-hmm. It's writing is his passion. He's definitely. And I think that too. Like he definitely. And I think too. He had definitely just kind of thrown away misery like as a protagonist as a series like Mm -hmm. he was done with it he had no interest like artistically continuing with it because he didn't see it anymore but now if she's going to be a zombie he sees so much more interest in like writing this like half dead like allergic woman right um and i mean that makes sense like the only like way that they've really described her is bubble-headed and like sex obsessed right so it's like i bet that gets boring to write about after a while i can only imagine um so in I chapter know, seven, will she live? Yeah, I yeah. got to know will she live. But so then, in chapter seven of this last section, here we are back to protective, Annie. motherly, nursing Annie. She didn't want to let him get back to work because she was taking. She it's, knew how close she'd come to really screwing it up and killing him. She really—it's so cyclical. Mm-hmm. In this exact moment, it is she is feeling guilt and remorse for what she chose to do. So instead of correcting that action and doing what she should do, which is take them to the hospital, she is overly protective and nurturing in the environment that she's forcing them into. Right. So I think, you know, he was in that car accident. Instead of taking the hospital, she kidnapped him. And instead of he's getting healthy, instead of like, you know, letting him like continue to get healthy, she breaks, cuts, cuts off his leg, leg or yeah. cuts off his foot. She's well, immediately remorseful. And he says that. She's like, he's recognized that now, too. Mm-hmm. That's the difference in this cycle is Paul knows her now. Paul knows which moments to take advantage of. Right. He knows which moments he needs to be careful in. Right. But he's also a little broken now. 
Yeah. Not just, he's hobbled. That's like, he honestly, the, yeah. Like, like Mentally, physically emotionally, and emotionally. Spiritually, yeah. hobbled, hobbled. Yep. Um, and then we just, he gets so enveloped in the gada. It just becomes a, like, every other paragraph starts with the gada, as in, I'll stay up another 15 minutes, honey. I gotta see how this chapter comes out. I gotta know how she will live. I gotta know, will he catch the shit heel who killed his father? I gotta know if she finds out her best friend's screwing her husband. Just that urge that you have yeah, to figure it out. Know. You have to know. You gotta know. And that's what Paul is sitting there. I think it's the only respite he has in life right now. Yeah, that's his only escape is I gotta, I gotta finish this. I gotta know what happens next. I've gotta do the things. Typewriter and just the typewriter continues to just be mean. Chapter plays back to that. Um, he wondered in a dull sort of way how close he was to going insane. Not that it really mattered, he supposed. Um, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because um, I remember reading this and like having to go back and read it. Uh huh. Um, the first sentence of this is one day not long before the thumbectomy. Yes. It's it's just so cool. It's so brilliant because instead of Stephen King just having this scene where Annie comes in and cuts off his thumb, we are learning about it two weeks after in a after, flashback. Right. Because that's more terrifying. Is it's like not at this point. It's not. It, it wasn't. We don't that. need to see more trauma. Right. We just need to see the effects of the trauma on Paul. Yep. And like seeing it through his mind and through his lens and the way that he's probably making it more terrifying it makes it so much more interesting. Yeah, but it also speaks to the fact that this is Paul's new normal. You know, um, it wasn't it wasn't important to tell us about it when it happened, just the results of it. So, yeah, mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. And so she goes in there and she asks him to, I just don't want to read the rest of it. Just tell me what's going on. And mm -hmm. he's like, no. Um, and uh, he starts to complain about the typewriter. And he realizes that's why she cut my thumb off. Yeah. She is like, uh, she pretty much, because she cuts off his left thumb, his non dominant hand. Yeah. And he says, uh, he's like, he had missed the connection until now. He had, uh, Annie reading each day's output, and enough time had passed between the argument and the thumbectomy that Paul had missed the connection. Mm -hmm. So Annie is so vengeful still in these moments. So she's so guilty, so remorseful. But he says one small comment, and two weeks later, she's just like, I can't take it anymore. I'm cutting his thumb off. Right. Like, you're going to complain about it? I'll give you something to actually complain about. Um, I think Paul starts to strategize. He's yeah. starting to strategize. He's trying not yeah. only to figure out ways that he relates to anybody. I think he's trying to figure out people that he knows so that way he can base what their weaknesses are and try to see if he can find a weakness in Annie. Yeah. And, and I think that the thumbectomy, as traumatic as it was, was also... A turning point for him he it, it made him realize that like for real legitimately for real it's real real now she is never going to this is never going to end until i'm dead yeah He's, she's just going to keep there's no middle ground there's no point. middle ground she's just going to keep cutting body parts off until i'm dead uh and he has a dream, and we finally get that little bit of explanation of what we've been trying to find. 
And then uh, she says, well, if it bothers you that much, I'll just have to give you something to take your mind off of it. And then she just goes and get a syringe, betadine, and an electric carving knife, like one for a turkey, and just goes to work on his thumb. And uh, he's sitting there. Uh, she cut off his thumb, and then what did she do? This is the next part. This is the most incredibly messed up thing. <laughs> She had cut his... This. This is the most messed okay. up thing. This... It, it is, though, isn't it? Like, this is not only, like, vengeful and petty and, like, harmful. This is, like, psychologically... I'm gonna mess with... Like, not... like I, Psychologically, I'm gonna hurt you. And make sure that you know that I am the one in control. She had cut his thumb off in the morning. And that night, she swept gaily into the room where he sat in a stupid daze of drugs and pain with his wrapped left hand held against his chest. And she had a cake, and she was bellowing happy birthday to you in her on-key but tuneless voice, although it was not his birthday cake. And there were candles all over the cake, and sitting in the exact center, pushed into the frosting like an extra big candle, had been his thumb, his gray, dead thumb the nail slightly ragged because he sometimes chewed it when he was stuck for a word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then she's like, if you promise to be good, I'll give you a piece of this cake. I don't want no thumb cake. (laughs) Like, that sounds awful. Oh, my gosh. Um, And she's just like, don't scream ever again. Never scream again. And he's never screamed since she gave him the thumb birthday cake. Mm -hmm. Um, He was so preoccupied with not screaming that for a moment he didn't even see what was coming into the driveway. And when he did see it, he believed at first that it must be a barrage. It was a Colorado State police car. Yeah. Really quick, I think it's important to notice how little gets into Paul's mind now. Yeah. Like, in the past, like, he was constantly, like, always aware of the outside influences and, like, what's going on. But now he's so focused in, like, his pain and, like, trauma, he doesn't even see the police car pull up. Right. Which you would think would be his, like, biggest, like... Excitement yet. Exactly. And, you know, previously we had all the details of the outside. The green grass, the snow, the rain, the barn, the every detail. This time we have a mirage. And there, it, his hope is sitting right there in the driveway. Yep. And it's just a mirage. There's something that disturbed the dream. Something was whirling away once he had been so poor. Man, he's so thinky now. He, yeah. like He's just constantly, loquaciously, yeah. like... I don't want to think about the trauma. Let's literally talk about everything in my head yeah. until like. So yeah, we the there is two and a half pages of text of his thoughts, his rapid fire thoughts before he even gets to what is he gonna do because there's a police car sitting in the driveway, and she's got him so cowed that his last thought is, "I won't scream." I, I won't. won't, I won't, I won't scream. Crazy. That's conditioning. Like, I wish I could train my puppy that well. And right? I can't. No. I am struggling. <laughs> I am not mean enough. And the fact that she is able to, she's broken this man. Yeah. He was so I mean, full of, like, knows. vim and vigor, and now he's just full of dust and nothing. Right. And he knows. He knows that this is it. He knows that this is it. But he all—he's so terrified that he—he he physically cannot. He says I, he tried to open his mouth and couldn't. He tried to raise his hands and couldn't. 
A horrible moaning sound passed between his closed lips, and his hands made light, haphazard drumming sounds on either side of the royal. He's just trying so he's, hard, but his little voice is winning now. His little, he's been broken. Yeah. Yeah. Help me, help me, save me from Annie. Don't scream, the panicky voice. Uh, and I think what's really interesting now is we get these, the things that are going to keep him alive now are the things that are the little voice now. Mm -hmm. So we have don't scream. Yes, scream is presented as the little voice. The little voice, yeah. Scream and it will be over. Scream and it can end. Little voice says never, never going to end. Not until it's I'm dead. That kid's no match for the goddess. Yeah. So he just sees himself as a little child against this like woman who has complete omniscient control over him. Yeah. And he's just scream, scream your head off. His lips pulled apart with a minute tearing sound. He hitched air into his lung, closed his eyes. He had no idea what was going to come out or if anything was until it came. Africa! Paul screamed. Africa, Africa, help me, help me, Africa. His, and then it, it, that's his chapter break. Yeah. I don't like that chapter break. It pissed me <laughs> off. Like I get that like it's probably, it's, if it was a movie, it'd be a scene change from in that interior shot to exterior, like close up on Sheriff. Mm -hmm. And I get that. And it, that's how it's presented. His eyes snap. The cop was looking toward the house. Paul cannot see the smoky's eyes because of the sunglasses, but the tilt of his ex head expressed moderate puzzlement. Over here, help me watch out for the woman. She's crazy. Oh, shit. The cop exclaimed, it's you. And, uh, well... <laughs> Uh, Annie here. It turns out she went and uh, she was trying to get into the pros in some baseball, I think. Is this the point, right? Because she comes out. Uh, no, this is the this is the lawnmower. She stabs him with the thing first, though. Mm -mm. Oh, yeah, the wooden cross. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. oh, she yeah, gets yeah, the dead. Bossy. It's the dead dog. That's yeah. So the, she, dead, the dead cow. The dead cow. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. So she takes the, she finds, she comes running out of the, um, which I, it makes me feel like she didn't know he was there. She hadn't mm -hmm. heard or she wasn't paying enough attention. Uh, his mouth dropped open and he saw it. And like, he brought out the picture. So he just pulls out the picture. He's got enough time here to like do so many things. Um, had been focused on the trooper. They did not see Annie until it was too late. So Annie had become a goddess, a thing half woman and half lawn boy, a weird female centaur. So she rides up with the wooden cross in one hand, um, and she has just got this fierce snarl. Um, Paul had watched her plant the cross, then read the Bible over the grave by the light of a new risen spring moon. So like, I think that's a fun little metaphor that she's mm -hmm. like, she let this cow die did all of that nice stuff for it and now she's gonna take that cow's like headstone and use it as a weapon yeah um uh annie plunged bossy's cross into the trooper's back so just stabs him right in the back and she's riding by on her riding mower so i just like she's like it's almost like polo she just rides by stab and then she like pause, gets off her riding mower stops it he's going for his uh pistol and he's just down on the ground, and Paul's just watching all of this. Mm -hmm. He's watching his one hope just be absolutely demolished. Yeah, and and no, this is it. There's nothing he can do, and man, the consequences. You know, it's got to be in his head. Now what's she going to do to me? Mm -hmm. Now what Now what are my... Because, woof. All right. She looked up, uh, and she stabs him again. 
And he she says, there, how do you like that, you old dirty bird? He, Paul's screaming, Annie, stop. Uh, and she just keeps stabbing him. There, she cried, and drove the cross into his back again, and his butt, and his upper thigh, and his neck, and his crotch. There, she said, almost conversationally, and walked away in the direction. So, Annie takes all of her rage, probably, from the last multiple days out on this cop who just mm-hmm. happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and she's very convinced that she's dead and we get another chapter break right and this is what in my opinion it'll be she another... just walks off yeah no longer interested walks away just before she passed from Paul's view she tossed the bloody cross side as if no longer interested which is woof um, so Paul is just sitting here horrified and mortified then he sees something which freezes him in place the cop the cop starts to move he was still alive this cop just I feel bad for him he's just out there like I feel bad for every murder victim obviously well right obviously but particularly he was just out there doing his job he's, he's just, hey have you seen this guy there's he got he has to truly be like there's no chance I'm gonna find this famous writer in the mountains of Colorado like that's dumb like, right but I'll go do it boss whatever you want and then all of a sudden he's being stabbed and murdered because he did find that famous writer in the mountains of Colorado right um and he reaches for his gun, just sitting there. And you can't really, you don't know where Annie is. Yeah. Cause... But the only thing that, like, Paul really gives us is you can hear the lawnmower. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the noise of the riding mower was louder. Look out, Paul screamed. Look out, she's coming. Annie reappeared, sitting tall in the saddle and driving the lawn boy as fast as it would go. He gets for his gun, and then he gets his gun out, and then he drops it. He go to get his. He goes to get his gun, and then Annie runs his hand and arm over, completely severing and cutting it off. the The trooper just starts screaming, and Annie goes, turns, just does a big U turn, and comes back for him again, and just rides the lawnmower over his head. Yeah. Like I said, it snowballs from the moment she hobbles him. She's not okay in that moment. She's not, not, she's okay. not okay. She's never been okay. She's, she's, never she's been really okay. not okay now. But in this moment, she's truly... Yeah, so she just runs his head over with this lawnmower. She's, she's really escalating. Like, Paul has not been a good influence on her, to say the least. No. Well, I mean, well, she's not a good influence on herself. And and this is typical behavior for... A serial killer. Eventually they escalate. That's when they get caught. Okay, so the lawn boy's engine suddenly lugged down and there was a series of fast, strangely liquid thudding sounds. Gross. Paul vomited beside his chair with his eyes closed. And then she comes back in, watched her approach. He, he, and he thinks, if, if you cut anything else off me, Annie, I'm going to die. It won't, it won't take the shock of another amputation either. I'll die on purpose. And she just comes and looks at him and says, I'll deal with you later, slams the door and locks it. And then she pretty much forces him to watch as she takes the dead body and pulls it into the barn. And we don't really see what happens from it then. Um, the bottom of the mower was smeared with blood like around the grassy exhaust. Um and this is where Paul gets the idea that if he can just get one police officer to look at the bottom of that lawnmower, he's going to be, 
he's going to be cleared. Right. Because she, he, no, he figures she's going to clean the top of it, but he does not think that she's going to clean the bottom of it. Um, something else. It was his ashtray. Oh, yeah. And uh, during all of that, he had thrown his ashtray through the window to yeah, get that sheriff's the, attention. That's how he got his attention, right? Um, and so she's outside of his window, picks up the ashtray, and just... Hands it back go. through the window. Here's your ashtray, Paul. You dropped this. Oh, my gosh. Woo! And she's singing. She's singing. Well, and it's while because... she's cleaning up. She says, I didn't kill him, you know. Annie, you killed him. If you had kept your mouth shut, I would have had just sent him away. He'd be alive now, and there would be none of this oogie mess to clean up. In no way is this her fault. Nothing is her fault. Nothing is her fault. And I think that at this point, it's just kind of getting to the extreme. She just truly doesn't see that she can do wrong. Right. And it's getting to the point of danger for herself. Yeah. Um, yeah. The wheels are definitely coming off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Yes, I don't know what you mean. Yes, you do. He had my picture. It's in your pocket right now, isn't it? Ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies, she says. And I think that Paul really just says, yeah, if he would have left, you would have killed me, Annie. There's no point in like us pretending at this point. We both know you're going to have to kill me at the end of this. Yep. And he's just, for some reason, when he's he's got this backbone now. Yeah. And I think that... that- Seeing that somebody actually is looking for him mm-hmm. has renewed his interest in living. I mean, he had lost all of his hope that he would actually survive this. But now there's somebody looking for him, like legitimately looking for him. Mm-hmm. And so I he's mean, got that we're four the confidence, months. the resurgence of like hope. Yeah, we're four, four and a half months in now, and this is the first time that somebody has been legitimately looking for him. And this is when he really, like, starts to, like, figure out, you're not that smart as I've been, like, giving you credit. You're not a goddess. I'm just overwhelmed and in a bad situation. So the next thing that we see is she's dragging some down to the cellar, and he's like, "What's going down to the cellar?" Yeah. Um, and he's like, "She's going to go get the axe." Because of course, he can't see anything, but he can hear it. She can hear and all he of the kn- thumps. And now and he like actually knows the layout of the house, so he knows exactly where she where is. she is and what that she's where she's taking something. And what she's doing, yeah, or, like an idea of what she's doing. Right. At least. Like she knows she's he knows that she is taking something into the cellar right now. Right. And he's just. Kind of relieved, he says. He's relieved that Annie's just going to come kill him finally. Right. I don't think he wants to do this anymore. I think he's very tired of it. And uh, to be honest, I would be very tired of it too. I yes. get it. Um, but she opens the door and she's just like, nah, I'm going to be a sweet, polite old lady. Um, and she's like, I'm not going to kill you, Paul. At least not in, if I have a little luck. I should kill you, but I'm crazy, right? And crazy people often don't look for their best interests, do they? And... She just takes him, puts him into the wheelchair, and uh, takes him to the kitchen, and then the piggybacks kitchen. him to the cellar. Yeah, and she's like, "You're gonna get on here, and if you do anything, I'm gonna throw you down the stairs." And he says, "Okay." So he gets up and onto her shoulders, and he brings her down, and she just puts him on top of a mattress. There's a little TV tray down there. There's some few bottles, um, and it's dirty smelly it's gross it's very musty she has what has got the barbecue pit it's very damp it's all kinds of wet um 
you throw, and I'm busy as a one-armed paper hanger. I'll be right back. And so she just kind of like, she's just starting to view all this as chores now. Yeah. Like, it's not even like something that like is bad or wrong or like amoral. It is just like, these are things I got to do now. Got to yeah. get through my gotta, busy day. Got to get through this. Feed the cow, chop up a body, put it in the ocean. Like, you know, that's Dexter. That's not Annie. <laughs> but still, three. there were three bottles of Pepsi on the collapsed TV tray. And she opened two of them and handed one one. Um, so she goes and gets them a little Pepsi and they have a little like she just has like a little like work break with him I think yep. she's really trying to just be like it's like when you're a child and you do something wrong and it's, you know you're going to get in trouble for it so your mother acts buddy buddy and is really nice until the moment she decides to drop the other shoe and she's like yep you and are in this trouble is the consequences. and so here's what's going to happen right. and he, you're getting that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what she's trying to do. She's really trying to instill that. She's trying to get back to that goddess child like control that she had, and it's gone now. And it's gone. Yeah. She's gone too far. She's her... She's, the, the goal of the hobbling is, like I imagine, is once you hobble them, you probably are really nice to them for the rest of their life. Right. Because that's how you're going to get their trust, and that's how like mm-hmm. you're going to like retain that like indentured servant essentially right and but no <laughs> that's not how it's gonna work not if you just cut work. off their thumbs um and then uh she says i'm gonna go and uh what does she say all i ever did was pull you out of a wrecked car splint your poor broken legs and give you medicine to ease your pain and take care of you and talk you out of a bad book you've written and into the best one you've ever written and if that's crazy take me to the loony bin she's she crazy. She's really justified herself, <laughs> hasn't she? She could get a little certificate. She's got donkey brains, and we need to get her a certificate for it. Um, and all Paul can do is he's just listening to this, is you also cut off my effing foot. And she says, don't you use that F word around me. I try not to use it on the podcast. Um, and I, she just... he. She really cannot accept that she did something wrong. Right. No, she that was a perfectly reasonable consequence to his actions. So why would that be bad? Right. So. She decides, she explains her plan all the way to him. She's yeah. going to take the car, the police you car. You got me monologuing. Yeah. <laughs> You've got me monologuing. And she's going to take the police's revolver and in case anybody shows up. And she's going to go and take them up to the laughing place and put them into the creek bed like she's done with everybody else and get away with it. Um, and you'll be fine, Paul. Gosh, you're such a worrywart. She stood in one of the cellar windows and stood there for a moment looking out, uh, measuring the fall of the day. And I think that we just have this paragraph and a half where Paul remembers the rats mm-hmm. and he remembers the rain. Um, Mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden he can just see all of the openings in this place, in this cellar and where the rats can get in and all these things. Um, his body was yelling for Norville. It was the Gata, wasn't it? Sure it was. And it's so fun to see how Paul relates this Gata into every aspect of his life at this point. Um, and put him in the car, drive him up. One of those great axioms of life on the Western slope, dead cows don't fall. I have a driveway chain on. Sees it so the police come. Oh, and then she says, "I'm going to put a driveway chain up at the end of the land so that way they can't get this far in again." Um, right, because they're not going to. If they don't see anything suspicious, they're not going to go around somebody's driveway chain. She's going to take the car away. She hosed the driveway off. The blood's gone, at least to plainly visibly gone. So yeah, she's just covering her 
covering her tracks. She's going to leave. And, um, <clears throat> you know, she's even got an alibi plan. She's, uh, she's going to the flea market. It's steamboat heaven. He's a little self-deprecating. It almost feels like he's truly going to hurt himself somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's starting to almost see him as like one of his patient, her patients at one of the hospitals. Mm-hmm. So much so that like she disassociates at one point and she says, but let them see one hand on their oogie old respirators. Then it's a different story. Yes, when they see that, they yell and cry and turn into a bunch of real brats. Yeah. So she just has this moment where she disassociates back into like the nurse world. And Paul doesn't know what to say at all. And she says, you know what's going to happen when another cop comes? And she just tells him exactly what she's going to explain and all of these things. And she's like, here's exactly like how I'm going to trick the police. She's going to get like this Pepsi can where she's going to put one of the police officer's fingerprints on it, the one that she just killed. Yep. And she's going to leave it a couple of miles down the road so that way she can say he came there, he gave her a Pepsi, and then he left. And yep. He never saw her again. Um, and it seems like it's going to work. And... Uh, she says, you know, I think that we probably got as much as a week before we have to leave this place now, Paul. And she says, you're going to have to write faster. Yeah. So now they have a deadline mm-hmm. because there's the poli- they know police. the police know they're looking for him. Their guy disappeared. The last person who saw him alive was Annie. They're going to figure that out. They're going to figure that out. It may take them a few days. It may take them a week, but they're going to figure it out. They're going to come back. They're going to investigate. They're going to look harder. So, so now she leaves, leaves him in the basement. Oh, 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 very important. She left him in the basement with a hypodermic needle full of medicine. Mm-hmm. So as she can, uh, in case it gets too bad. In case it gets too bad. Um... And so at this point, she's like, you know, I'm going to leave now. Like, you have all the details. I just want you to make sure you understand how high the stakes are. Right. Um, she brings him some more food, a bedpan, and she sa- and he says, if you bring me down some yellow legal pads, I'll work in longhand. Um, and she says, ah, that would be nice, Paul, but I can't have you with a light on in here. Yeah. Which is smart, because if the police does drive by and they just see a light on in the cellar, they're going to be gonna curious. They're going to wonder why. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's definitely, like, not a usual thing. Um, and then I think in these moments is where it's like starting to rain and he says he can feel uh, the rats looking at him almost because mm-hmm. um, it made her um, now his fear drove me. if I had wanted to burn the house down Annie I would have done it long before then uh, paint them black or Christ Annie the rats the rats he's so focused on these rats he's so yeah. scared of these rats now Annie laughed she climbed the stairs laughing harder and harder there was a click as the lights went out and Annie went on laughing and he told himself he wouldn't scream, wouldn't beg, that he was past all that. And he just listens to her laugh as she locks up the entire house and just, just hear click, click, bolt, click, lock, click. Mm-hmm. And he's, she's and just he's laughing just and she leaves and he's there alone. So we are currently sitting there. Paul is in the cellar, lights out, nighttime, it's starting to rain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Annie has locked everything up and left. Paul is laying there with a hypodermic needle. He's got a can of Pepsi. He's got some crackers. 
There's the barbecue that she had used to burn his manuscript, and it's still got all of the things there. There's rats everywhere. There's a mattress down there for him. And she's essentially left him to his own devices now. And his oh-so-vivid imagination is on full tilt. Oh, yeah. All he can see is the possibility of where those rats are. And then the saddest thing starts to happen where Annie's manipulation starts to work. And he starts to blame himself for that police officer dying. Mm -hmm. And he just says, it's my fault that you're not at home watching TV with your wife right now. And he just can't get that out of his head. And he sees the hypodermic needle, picks it up for the first time, puts it back. It's something he probably is going to do eight or nine times while he's in this cellar right now. He's going to pick it up, put it back, pick it up, put it back. Because the entire time he's just sitting there thinking, like, uh, in the next chapter, which is only a couple of paragraphs long, but he's really sitting there thinking about how vulnerable he is Mm -hmm. and how everything could kill him. And so he looks at the needle and she's like, he's really thinking and considering... Did she give me some pain medication or is she going to kill me with this needle? And right. she's already left. And that's why she locked everything up. Because if she, he just dies down there, she never has to worry about this again. Right. And right. I think partially, that's why Annie wanted her to, him to just tell her the rest of the story. Yeah. Because if she knew, she could kill him. Right. And be done with and it. And be done with it. Yeah. And, be just and like be safe again. Um, and I think that that's part of it too is she's constantly deteriorating because she is not in a safe situation for four months. Right. It's four months of being on edge with a hostage captive with constantly trying to like manipulate and like force the outcomes that you want. Like right. there's no moment of respite. Um, and Paul has, this is a fun little one. It's just, it's almost all of his dreams from the entirety of the book all combined into one. And it just comes down to the final idea Burn, baby, burn. Burn the mother down. Yep. Burn the mother down. Paul Sheldon slept. It's the flicker I, of an idea, it says. Yeah, and, and it's like this idea has finally given him some peace. I feel like this, that three words, Paul Sheldon slept, didn't, he just slept. slept. He didn't dream they anymore. He didn't dream anymore. I feel like that just... He discovered a resolution for himself. Right, and so there was this sense of peace, so he just went to sleep. When he woke up... Especially because at that very first, the beginning of that chapter that you're talking about, it says he did not die and he did not sleep. Right. So he's just living in an ether in, a, in the in-between, mm-hmm. and he finally he gets that flicker of an idea, and he finally has enough comfort to finally fall asleep. There's yeah. relief there for some reason. Absolutely. And I really love how Steve doesn't tell us the idea. In right, any way right. whatsoever. Because, I mean, that's... I, it's just a good literary tactic because I want to know now and, like, see right. it presented in the story. Yeah. But now also, there's, you know, there's 50 pages left, and it doesn't matter if it's two in the morning. You're finishing this book oh, tonight because yeah. you've got to know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up right at dawn, and there's a rat sitting there eating the cheese. He screams, and then all of a sudden his pain uh, is there, um, and he sees the Norville, he takes two of them, washes it down with the Pepsi, (laughs) he feels his kidneys hurt. It's like, yeah, you've been hooked on pain pills for four months, it probably Mm. does hurt, you're not like very well hydrated either. And then burn, mother burn, comes back into his mind, and it's just nothing but thinking about exactly what he could do. Right. And uh, he's trying to think about, it's a conversation between himself now. He's not having like these small little like one-sided like 
concurrent, like thought, logical thought processes. He's arguing with himself about yes. what the truth is about if something is right, if he should have been doing something like, and yes, he is. And then he gets this really fun. This is one of my favorite parts of the novel where he says, uh, as a result, hadn't his serious fiction become steadily more self-conscious, a sort of scream. Look at me. Look how good this is. Hey, guys, this stuff has got a sliding perspective. This stuff has got a stream of consciousness interludes. This is my real work, you a-holes. Don't you dare turn away from me. Don't you dare, you cock a brats. And I think it's really interesting. He's picked He's up some of right. Annie's vernacular. Uh-huh. Don't you dare turn away from my real work. Don't you dare or I'll, what, what would he do? Cut off their feet, saw off their thumbs? And right. I think, if nothing else, Paul's going to become out of this a much kinder, gentler person. I think so. Um, <laughs> you, you know, assuming that he can get past the PTSD of this. And he has this idea. How would you feel if she made you burn misery's return? Right. The, the little voice. Yeah. The little voice. The interior voice whispered, and he jumped a little, drifting away. He realized it would hurt. Yes, it would hurt terribly. It would make the pain he felt when fast cars went up in smoke look like the pain of this kidney infection compared to what he had felt when she brought the axe down, cutting his foot off. So he's saying fast cars is nothing compared to misery returns. Right. Misery returns means so much to him. He would rather die than let her take that work from him. Right. She, this has become... It's his life now. He knows that misery returns is, that's the entirety of his life now. But he says, he realized that wasn't the real question. Mm -hmm. The real question is how it would make Annie feel. Right. And that, like we've been talking about, that is their connector. That is the thing they both want. That is the thing they both want to see happen. If one of them makes the decision to not want that goal anymore, and in fact, do something to that goal to hinder the other person, that's going to be a major emotional blow. Right. Um, and Paul thought, burned the mother down and fell asleep. There was a little smile on his pale, fading face. For the first time, he has a plan of action. We are 280 pages into this book. We are in the middle of the, like, at the very end of the third part. And he finally is like, oh. An active plan. Mm-hmm. Because... She put him in a place where he has access to stuff that he's never had before. In the bottles on the table, one of them was a can of lighter fluid. So we get here and she picks him. Okay, so Annie comes back uh, about three in the afternoon and Mm -hmm. she had to ride a motorcycle all the way back from the laughing place. place. But the motorcycle wouldn't start, so she had to clean it and like plugs were dirty and then she started. I think like. She also, like, how handy she is. Right. I think that's yeah, really, super, like, she's yeah. very, like, she's capable. She's a very capable woman. And it's Which just is why she's gotten away with all, all of, the, of this stuff. All of it for so long. And because, she's a formidable foe. Yeah. She's someone that Paul's going to have to really step up to beat. She is smart. She is capable. She is handy. She is strong. She is all of those things. She's also not well. So she comes down to pick him up, and she's picking him up, and she carries him up, and the entire time Paul has one thought, please don't look at my underwear because he has shoved this can of lighter fluid in his underwear right down the back of his pants, and he's just trying to keep the facade up, and the last sentence of that chapter, that this time he had really fooled her. Otto, Kim, that was incredibly interesting. Great job today. 
If you would like to support First Time Through, you can follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, or send us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash firsttimethrough to get exclusive early access, to get exclusive videos, and to become our exclusive friends. If that's interested to you. I'm interested. First Time Through, New Eyes on Castle Rock, is produced by Empty Theater Productions. It was created by Kim Payne and Otto Mullins. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art.